Welcome to the Village Podcast. I am your host, Nicole Trumpio. My why has always been to empower women and amplify the voices of mothers. We created the village to share stories and ideas to embody the innate wisdom of a village, but on a modern day platform. I hope this podcast inspires, educates, and informs you and brings you the joy, love, and light you deserve. Welcome to the village. I feel so honored to have our next guest here. We're about to talk to the legendary, iconic Dr. Crane. And when I say that, I mean, I'm sure 50% of the people that are listening to this podcast have either heard of Dr. Crane, have been birthed by Dr. Crane, and didn't you deliver the Kardashians and then you delivered their babies as well? Yeah. 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 That, that, that illustrates how old I am. Well, I was going to ask, how long ago did you deliver your first baby? I delivered my first baby in 1967. 1967. Yeah. That wow. was at, at the county hospital in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wow. As a med student. So I had, uh, in the last two, three months, yeah. I had three women mm. who had three kids who each got pregnant, sort of by mistake. All three of the ones, when they came in for their six-week checkup, you know, mm-hmm. we said, well, what are we going to do for birth control? No, we don't have to worry about it. We always keep track, and we never get pregnant unless we want to. Yeah. All three of them got pregnant, and all three of them had a fourth kid. Wow. And they started out, and I have another one like that right now. They're all sort of in shock, this one who just is about eight or nine weeks. Because mm-hmm. you know, three is a lot in today's yeah. world, so four is even more. Yes. I feel like once you have three, four is the same, though. Five. How many kids do you have? I have six kids. You have six? Yeah. And I always say, unfortunately, I think I have too many kids. (laughs) Because now they're all adults. Like, I just talked to my oldest kid. My oldest kid is 52 years old. Wow. And he got a tick. He lives in upstate New York, and he thought he was going to get Lyme disease. So I had to call in some antibiotics for him today. I think you'll see this as your kids get older. They're, they're just as much work, if not more. Yeah, right. But I always say to people, if they're thinking about three yes, and they're debating it, they should do it. Because five or ten years later, they come in and they say, oh, I should have had that third. Yeah. And you could say the same thing about the fourth. Yes, yeah, so I was going to say, what about me, who's debating four? Well, first of all, you've got to have a house that's big enough. Yeah. Got to have the money to support them. Yes. But I think beyond that, the more the merrier. So yeah. They're all out of diapers and they can have conversations with us now. So and we're it is out true when you get, you get to a certain point, you say, do we really want to go through this again? Mm-hmm. I have this crazy overprotective kind of notion. Yeah. And I admire people that are like that. Oh, I wish I could let go a little bit. And you probably nursed for a long time, too. I did, and I got up three times a night with the babies, and then I also work like crazy. I'm just a crazy overachiever, and I need to, like, relax a bit. <laughs> um, but wait, so you were saying you've, you've had such a long career. I know your wife is trying to get you to retire. And I know three and a half, even five years ago, you were like, this well, is going to be Did I say my- that? Yeah, you were like, I think I'm yeah. going to retire soon. My wife wants me to retire. And you're still, you're just like so in love with what you do. Well, which is I decided, incredible. I actually set a date mm-hmm. of July 1st, 
2024. Okay. Because that's when I will have finished 50 years of practice. But I have people now that are coming in who are pregnant who are due the end of May. Oh. And so I'm saying, listen, if I'm going to really do that, that means I'm going to have to tell people in a month. Yes. So I don't think I'm going to do it this year. Maybe you can just have a really big party to celebrate you, because I know so many people that would love to celebrate you. I don't know. I, I, I think I'd be too embarrassed for that. I actually am excited doing obstetrics, and I think it doesn't actually stress me out that much. And so it's really a very, really exciting part of practice in a sense of really being able to, especially people's first kids. Yeah. Just to be able to help kind of guide them through from beginning to end and mm-hmm. kind of it's and to participate in uh, in what is a great thing for these people. And what do you think is like the first thing that you do to prepare people for their first baby? Kind of sit down and talk about their anxieties a little bit. And, um, you know, we talk about the usual stuff. I mean, I try to talk about nutrition and the stuff Rumor was talking about, now she's, that was a very sophisticated young woman who was telling all that stuff. Yes. She has a lot of uh, pretty deep thoughts about things, mm. which I think I'm a little more, I was going to say about my child-rearing techniques. Yes. I would not consider myself a great dad. Oh. And she's obviously a great mom. <sighs> and I think you're obviously a great mom, too, just talking about really wanting to do everything yourself. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you something interesting. One of the things that I would say, even though I sort of am, you know, sort of a fan of natural birth and stuff. Yeah. What has kind of changed my practice over the years, Mm. it's been ultrasound. Because it is a, even let's say at seven weeks or eight weeks, it's early bonding Mm. that makes the whole thing seem real. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like, like I had somebody today that was sort of like that first pregnancy at age like 46 or so. Wow. First pregnancy at age 46. To see that little embryo that's this big, but to see the structure and moving around and the heartbeat and all that stuff, it really just kind of locks people into the bonding with their fetus. Yes. And I think it makes people much more uh, excited and participatory in the whole process and that you know is one of the interesting things that that's interesting because i feel like insurance only covers like a certain amount they don't pay for any of them right and so i I feel like i I do them all for free though well that was the beauty is like with you because i remember being out of state with you and so i'd come and see you and whenever i wanted to get an ultrasound you were so open to it i think the whole thing is that even when you talk about, let's say, birth, people do not realize how bad birthing was mm. back in the 60s mm-hmm. into the 70s, let's say. And when I started out in medicine, I told you I did my first birth in 1967 yeah. as a medical student, but that was spending time at the county hospital in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Mm. Abortion was not legal. It was pre-Roe versus Wade. Most of the people were single. Most of the people didn't want their kids. There was no epidurals in those days. Everyone was screaming and 
and it was very bloody and messy. And I, my initial reaction is, how could anybody really want to do this as a profession? And uh, I left that rotation, not never thinking I was going to be interested in obstetrics again. Mm. And in those days, people did not participate in their own pregnancies or labors or deliverers. Mm. So, and this is where natural childbirth came into it, but we used to put most people asleep for births. Really? We had this uh, process called twilight sleep. Mm -hmm. Twilight sleep was uh, invented in the, like the 1915 to 20 range. Yeah. And it was considered a really great thing. So it was a combination of Demerol, which was a narcotic and a sedation, and something called scopolamine, which kind of spaced everybody out. Mm. There was a episode of Mad of Mad Men, you know that um, yeah. that TV show, where the girl had her third baby, and they did a really good kind of reenactment of that because mm -hmm. they had her hallucinating mm -hmm. and having some weird dreams in labor, mm -hmm. and the guy. Don Draper was down in the waiting room drinking and smoking. And in fact, when I started out in obstetrics, even in private hospital setting, the husbands were never in for the birth. Right. And they were never there for the for the visits in labor or, you know, during the pregnancy. And the women weren't there for their own birth either because they were mostly totally out of it. And that was just general practice. That everyone was much, had the same. Pretty much everyone had the same. Right. Did you ever encounter a woman that was like, I don't want this in those times? Well, I think there were still people that were starting to um, appreciate the idea of natural childbirth. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, maybe, just into the 1970s, is when what we now call natural childbirth sort of got started with the Moz teachers and Bradley mm -hmm. teachers and uh, even hypnobirthing got started around then. But the whole notion of doing it naturally uh, became an important goal for people because they started to appreciate that it was not good for babies to give them all this stuff because yeah. the babies were born asleep and you always hear these stories of, you see these pictures of they're holding the babies up by the legs and whacking the babies. Yeah. Because they're trying to get them to wake up. Right. So they could cry. Because a lot of them were born really zonked out. Because of the drugs. Yeah, so the whole idea of natural childbirth kind of came into being. And that was the first time that we ever let partners in the birth. And you know that when we first started doing that, like at Cedars, we had two birthing rooms. But if somebody, and at Cedars, we had epidurals fairly early on. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is that if people ended up needing an epidural, lo and behold, they couldn't deliver in those birthing rooms. And more importantly, the partner was not allowed to be in for the birth. Mm -hmm. And people said, well, why was that? Because it's become such a normal part of life. Yeah. And I think it's become a really important part of life. Yes. And that's why with the pandemic, when they restricted the number of people, I, I actually wrote a letter recently to finally get the number of people increased from two to three. 
Because the the midwife would come and the husband would be left. Well, no, they they well we for about the last year or so we've allowed two people in. Mm-hmm. The one would be the husband, and then maybe a doula or a midwife. Yeah. But that means if you wanted to have your mother or your sister mm-hmm. or your best friend, you couldn't do that. Yeah. See, I do home births too once you in a do. while. You do, yeah. But I don't really. You did one recently for Nikki Reed, right? Yes. Yes. Do you know Nikki? Yeah, we... Do you know her professionally? I actually have never met her, but she wears bumpsuit. So I'm looking forward to meeting her soon. Well, I delivered her. Oh, you did? Yeah. You actually delivered her? No, yeah. I remember when... Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of the stories about you delivering the mom and the children. That's, That's what happens when you've been in practice why? 45 years. That's why you're so iconic. <laughs> it's like, oh, Dr. Crane delivered me and my babies. And it's like you... You're just such an icon. I don't even know if you know the, I'm sure you do, just how much love you've spread all over this world. Listen, I know I get a lot of credit I don't deserve. I think it's all deserved. See, you know, talking about working, Mm. one of my best friends in medicine is a neurologist. Yeah. And this guy, for the last 30 years, he's been talking about retiring. Mm Mm-hmm. So the minute he ate, he reached age 65, he retired. But he was on call once a week at St. Joe's Hospital, which is out in Burbank. And imagine having to drive down to the hospital in the middle of the night to take care of somebody having a stroke and then have to go out and talk to the family and talk about how bad things are. Um, in, in our situation almost always things are exciting and happy and yeah. jovial and so it's and it's very uplifting mm. so that's why i have the advantage and that's why i don't actually care that i hardly do any gynecology stuff anymore yeah right except for little checkups and things yeah i think that watching the evolution of of birthing in um, particularly here in la it's just become so much a nicer process. That's true whether people do it naturally at home or yes. doing it naturally in the hospital or do it with an epidural or even do an elective C-section, which people do. In some cultures, they elect for it because they just don't want that area of their body to be disturbed. And I'll tell you, in, uh, in, in Canada, what I've... Each for their own. In emerging societies, mm. Brazil, Mexico... People that are in the upper echelon of the economic scale, they all have C-section. This episode is brought to you by Bumpsuit, the modern company redefining maternity and beyond. I always see on Instagram people saying, oh my God, this is the softest fabric ever. And it's true. The Bumpsuit Cloud Collection is like, it feels like you're in the clouds. You're an angel walking through the clouds. And now they offer it for men and kids too. So all the mamas out there that have gotten to experience Bumpsuit and Bumpsuit Cloud Collection, you can now get something for your husband and your little one. You know, the husband that has to stay in the hospital for a couple of nights while you go through labor. You could be like, here, honey, you can have some bump suit too. It is the best, the dreamiest lounge slash sleepwear, and you'll never find anything softer. Go to bumpsuit.co 
That's bumpsuit.co. Use the code THEVILLAGE20 for 20% off your entire order. You're welcome. What I really love about you, and I think why a lot of people gravitate towards you and your reputation is you really are there for to kind of educate your um, patients, but also like really honor their needs and wants. I remember when I had a really kind of traumatic home birth in Austin, Texas, and I had known you before that. And I didn't want to have another baby because I was so traumatized by that first experience. And I remember coming to see you after that experience and you were telling me how well that I healed and then I had this unnecessary surgery, which was a mistake and all of that stuff happened. And then I fell pregnant. We, we call it fall pregnant in yeah, Australia. That's, we that's kind of a British thing. <laughs> I fell pregnant again and I, I remember being so scared because I had so much fear around that first labor that I said to my husband and thank God we had a base in LA. I will only do this if, well, I didn't really have a choice, but I really want to have this baby with Dr. Crane because I really trusted you and I, and I felt really safe. And I came to LA and I remember you saying to me, if you want to do this at home, I can assist. If you want to do it in hospital, I think that would be great too. And so what is your theory around home birth versus hospital birth, um, because I know you're quite neutral on both of them, so it would be really interesting to hear your perspective. Well, it's interesting. I'll get, tell you, I have um, the guy that was the, the best man in my last wedding with my current wife, his daughter, who I actually also delivered, who's now somewhere in her mid-30s, is pregnant, mm -hmm. and she wants to do a home birth with a midwife, which I'm okay with, but... Here's the thing about home births. I back up midwives too. Mm -hmm. So home births are not as safe as hospital births, no matter what anybody says. There are things that happen at home, fortunately not very often, maybe only 1% of the time, maybe 2% of the time. But even if you take a low-risk person, you never know what's going to happen. So people can have bleeding problems. They can have this stuff, meconium, which babies can breathe in and have a hard time getting rid of. There can be other things that can happen. I never really talk about the potential risks and benefits because I leave that up to the midwife. What people need to know is that there is extra risk. Mm -hmm. Now, when I do my own home births, I talk to people about that risk because mm -hmm. it it's been proven that it's my responsibility. They can still do the home birth, but they need to know that there's a risk that they're deciding to take. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to only do low-risk births at home. Like we had this one OB guy in L.A. that was doing twins and breaches and other things at home, which really just yeah. don't make any sense. Yeah. I think in low-risk circumstances, Home birthing is reasonable. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that it's okay to live at the far reaches of Malibu and do a home birth? Mm. Well, maybe it does and maybe it doesn't. I don't know. But, but here's the thing. There's actually a guy that calculated out increased risk of birthing, and, and he came to the conclusion, which has been agreed upon by lots of countries where home birthing is part of the routine care, like Netherlands is one country, England, 
to a certain degree. This guy concluded that people should not do first births at home. That's my theory as well. Well, you remember how much easier your second birth was. Yes. And the third birth also, it was I think really easy. If you're someone that researches a lot and you are very in tune with your body, you have a good, you know, support system around you and you are close to a hospital and you have a, a plan. I think first birth, yes, but at, in my case, I was I didn't have any people in my life that were having babies. Um, I didn't have much knowledge. I was very young. I was quite naive and I was not in a place that I felt safe. We'd just moved to a new city and I didn't have any family and any friends around me. And there was a storm and I was birthing in was a, cold, really? a cold pool of water. So my really? body was retracting and I was trying to open. It was it was disastrous. But yeah, it's, it's like I, I'm curious to know, though, what are the things that you warn people about when if they do want to proceed with a home birth? Like what are the things that you, you as a doctor would go and say, okay, I'm on board, but I need to notify you about these certain things. What would they be? Well, first of all, this, this so-called meconium, you know, uh, actually I should have brought this. So a lot of times you don't see that. That's if babies have poops in, in utero, but sometimes you don't notice it because the head's there, so it doesn't really come out. And then once the baby comes out, it comes out and babies can breathe it in. Mm -hmm. It can be life-threatening for mm -hmm. babies. As a matter of fact, the fellow I work with had a, a baby at, in the hospital that had that problem. Wow. That was life-threatening. Well, the baby ended up in the NICU for, let's say, a week or 10 days. Bleeding things are always a potential. Yes. I learned... Um, Recently, one of my great-grandmas died in childbirth. And the interesting thing is, um, well, I'm trying to figure out exactly what happened. This cousin of mine that told me about it, it was sort of a vague thing, but I'm pretty sure she had bleed, bleeding to death. So if the placenta gets stuck, yeah, that can be a big deal. Several midwives I've had to admit their hospitals to get the placenta out. And you can lose a lot of blood pretty quickly I, that way. I, I hemorrhaged, but I'm not exactly quite sure why. And it was quite... Bad. Well, sometimes the placenta, it separates partially. Mm. And so it opens up the bed of all these blood vessels. Because mm. it isn't until it comes out totally that the uterus contracts down. Yeah. And that bleeding comes under control usually. I've done about 100 home births mm -hmm. in my career, I'd say. And how many hospital would you say? Well, I yeah. I calculated out that I've done about 6,500. Wow. But I'm not doing so many anymore. Mm, but what would you say, because I know, you know, a lot of intervention happens in the hospital, and that's kind of why women have opted for a home birth, so they can control their own story. Well, you know what? You see, there doesn't have to be a lot of interventions. When I present people with the notion of, having a natural birth, let's say, in hospital, we don't have to do much of anything to them. Yeah. But a lot of physicians, if, I, I they get to, to involve. I, I try to think of obstetrics as a natural part of life. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the vast, vast majority of times, it is. Yeah. You have to be wary 
And, and one of the things that I see happening now is that we're so worried about the tiny percent that maybe wouldn't be without problems, that, that it's over, it's made us much more aggressive mm. about things that maybe we should just watch. Yes. And for instance, you know, you may know this, um, there was this big paper that came out about four years ago called the ARRIVE trial. Mm. And um, it got a lot of publicity. Uh, they took 6,000 patients. They induced 3,000 at 39 weeks, mm -hmm. no matter how favorable or unfavorable the cervix was. Mm -hmm. And the other 3,000, they let deliver when they, they let them go all the way up to 42 weeks, and then they compared the out, outcomes. Mm -hmm. Turns out that the ones that got induced at 39 weeks had better outcomes, which surprised everybody. But part of that problem was they, they didn't separate out people between 41 and 42 weeks because that is an area where people have high, higher degree of, of problems. Mm -hmm. So in the aftermath of that study, it became almost standard in some people's minds to induce everybody. Right. No matter how unfavorable the cervix was. And some of these people end up with 35-hour labors, or even longer. And I have a lady coming up right now, and she's um, first baby, she's about 37, and she decided she wants to be induced at 39 weeks because she's been reading about all this. Yeah. And I said, well, why do you really want to do that? And he said, well, because I don't want anything to go wrong. I want to be in control and have be in there and be on the fetal monitor. And But she, I said, you know what it's going to take? It's going to take like 30 hours at least, and she doesn't care because she got so, but that is a myth. I think that's the wrong thing to talk to people about. I mean, my second birth was so beautiful and so healing for me. I remember going into labor. I think she was a little late, but not much. Well, maybe like right on time, but my first was two weeks early. So I thought it was kind of like late. Um, no, she was, she was a little late. Like maybe a week? I don't know. Do you remember? I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember either. I do, I do remember. It was pretty easy. <laughs> I remember just like I definitely knew I wanted an epidural because my first was so traumatizing. But I remember it being so easy. I, You gave me the epidural and I fell asleep. And I remember like... <laughs> Woke you, up when it was time to push. Yeah, huh? and I remember you sitting there just... First of all, all the nurses love Dr. Crane, so everything is just like laid out and so sharp and on point. And so I remember you sitting there reading the paper and me and my husband were there and I fell asleep and I remember seeing my contractions get stronger and um, I remember being able to, you know, push her out and I was laughing, which was polar opposite of my first experience. I was able to pull her out myself, which, I mean, I, I saw one of the Kardashians do that on TV with you, but I never imagined that that was like, or could possibly be real life, especially after my first experience. Well, and it was so healing for me. Well, that's, that's great that it was. Well, let me say that second births are so much easier, no matter what you do. But I also loved the fact 
you know, at Cedars Sinai, and I'm not sure how many other hospitals do this, but everyone's so woke or aware to the fact that people don't want to be on their backs. They don't want to have a bright light shining at their crotch. You know, they don't want to be tied down. It's like Cedars Sinai. But you know, most people still deliver in stirrups and stuff, which I don't like to do. I almost never do that. You are just, I, I wish, I hope that one day you could film a delivery so people could use that as textbook standard um, because you're amazing and I feel so lucky to be able to have had my two my second and third babies with you I'm I feel very (laughs) lucky that I had you it's you were very pleasant it's a gift but I also remember Cedars for pain management they list you can have an epidural you can have a certain amount of things like pressure points, acupuncture, or you can use doTERRA aromatherapy grade oils. And I was like, wow, that's pretty, you know. Although they have been (laughs) reluctant to, you know that um, years ago we used to use nitrous oxide Mm. and people would breathe it and then they'd be sort of, it would really help with the pain. and And some hospitals have started using that again. And we've been exploring the possibility to do it at Cedars, and they've been exploring it for years. This has been a, I mean, the anesthesiologists don't want us to do that because they want everyone to get epidurals. Because why? It makes the hospital money? Is it a money thing? Makes the anesthesiologist money. Okay. But they should be a little more honest because they've had sort of a committee that's been exploring this. And every time I kind of ask about it, they basically have not really advanced their ideas. I think I had the epidural and I went into a hospital because I was just wanted such an opposite experience. But I feel like going through it, I can total the second time I can see how that would have been totally fine without an epidural. And I can also see how just like doing the due diligence of laboring at home and that pressure point on your back when you push down on your um, sacrum. It really relieves yeah, it can a lot help of pain a lot. so much, like incredibly different to, to have that feeling during a contraction. That's so where the doulas come in. The doulas are, or even I feel like my husband. Yep, if he, they can do it. Yes. It's like that pressure point is totally relieving and just having more knowledge around that. Because I was also talking to someone recently about when your baby's born and if they do have the drugs, they're not seeing you really clearly that first moment of connection and I remember my son as traumatic as my birth was the first time I remember him being so much more aware and maybe it's a personality thing maybe not I don't think having an epidural or not having an epidural is monumental enough to affect my kids well the amount of the amount of anesthetic that goes in to let's say your bloodstream and then goes through the placenta to the baby is infinitesimal. Yes, right. And in fact, that's one of the reasons uh, going way back, like we were talking about that epidurals caught on so much because they, in fact, so when when people used to argue against getting anesthesia, mm. once that argument was was projected to epidurals, it's sort of a hard argument to make because they aren't unsafe. But what I say to people, 
because a lot of times people they'll get they'll get up to be about eight centimeters and they say, "Oh, can I get an epidural?" Well, I said, "Yeah, if you want to, but you can make it through." But they said, "Well, I wanted an epidural." So in today's world, they get to stay in the LDRs. The partner gets to stay with them. The other family members or friends get to stay with them, and there isn't really a negative to epidurals. I tell people it's mainly aesthetics. Because if you don't get an epidural, you don't need an IV, you don't need to be on the fetal monitor, you can walk around, you can take a bath, you can take a shower. A lot of people like that. The other thing which we've really worked hard for is to really give the babies directly to the mom, yeah. not even weigh them. Right. Because we have this new saying, the weight can wait. Yeah, right. And that thing's sort of cute, but you know, when people make out birth plans of what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Way back 10, 20 years ago, they always used to whip the babies over to the nursery. Right. And so when people would make out birth plans, the first thing we'd always have them put down is I don't want my baby to leave me. And so now we really bend over backwards. Skin on, on skin. In talking about a hospital birth now, I mean, I know you've brought some amazing things that I want to talk about, but I want to know about like intervention and the things in a hospital that can go wrong? First of all, there are things that can happen to the mom. So preeclampsia, which is high blood pressure and protein in the urine and kidney dysfunction and sometimes liver dysfunction, that still is a pretty common problem. Sometimes it doesn't manifest itself until people are in labor, sometimes beforehand. But that can be very dangerous for both the mother and the baby. And what are signs for... Well, it's, it's one of the reasons that every time people come in, we take blood pressures and we check the urine for protein. Bleeding can be a big deal, like I said. It can be a big deal in the pregnancy, in labor, in delivery. And listen, probably the most common thing with preeclampsia or can go along with hypertension as we see more older and older people having babies, we will see strokes once in a while. That can be really serious. So uh, hemorrhage, strokes, preeclampsia, those are kind of the big three. And those are before going into labor. It can be before or during. You know what? The, you know why the thing that's sort of interesting is midwives always call their patients clients, and I cannot get out of the habit of calling people patients. Mm-hmm. I think we need a new term for people having babies because I don't like the word clients. To me, it's, to me it's, um, it, I just think of lawyers. But I can see why people don't like the term patients because if we assume that almost always things go fine without problems, and truly that does happen, and in, in fact... In today's world, we almost create some of the problems. There's good reason why the C-section rate goes keeps going up, mm-hmm. because people are afraid to deliver breech babies. People are afraid to deliver twins. People are afraid, and maybe uh, the patients don't want to use forceps. Mm-hmm. I brought a set of forceps. Do you like using forceps? <laughs> well, I'm going to show you the forceps. So wow. this is a set. This is actually a set of forceps that's pretty old. It's probably about 150 years old. Wow! And there's a couple of things that make it 
that ancient. But usually the way forceps work is you just slip it into the vagina and you grab the head and you lift the head out as the mom. It gives a little more force to the push. Mm-hmm. Well, when I was in training, and, and truly when I was first in practice, we used to deliver about half the patients with forceps. And partially that was because women had that twilight sleep and they couldn't really participate. And, mm-hmm. Or when we first start epidurals, the epidurals were much stronger. Mm, I have a question about twilight sleep and epidurals. So did the twilight sleep drug, would that go to the baby? Yes. It would. So epidural is like... Epidurals was a big yeah. advance after the twilight sleep. Yeah. So the reason that they were used is because of that. Well, we mainly used them because mothers were asleep. and they Or actually, af- after the early 70s in my hospital, most people got epidurals. Mm-hmm. But they were very strong one-shot epidurals, just given at the end. And so, so we got anxious about forceps. And they sort of went into dis- disuse. But the fact is, and I have only done like one forceps birth in about the last 10 years. Wow. So you're not a fan. Well, I, I kind of um, agree. We used to, you know what used to, here's what happened. So it was introduced about the time I was in training, this thing called a vacuum. Mm. That thing scares. I mean, the, they both scare me, but that thing really scares me. Well, this me. is this is kind of a new version of a vacuum, but the, you know that would you'd put it on the mom's uh, the the baby's skull, and you would put this negative pressure on it, and then you could help pull the baby down. Well, it turns out we used to think this was safer. Forceps used to cause a lot of really bad tears, mm-hmm. which vacuums don't do, but. Uh, in the last maybe 10 years, we, people have discovered that vacuums really aren't that safe. Mm. Well, you can cause hemorrhage of the skull. Yeah. And um, so I don't do hardly any vacuums either anymore. And so what do we do? We let people push longer. Mm-hmm. And uh, we make sure that they can feel to push. Yeah. So the standard now with a first baby with an epidural is up to four hours of pushing. Mm, and we used to be two hours of pushing. At the end of that time, the baby wasn't coming out. Use the forceps. Right. Plus, we also used to do episiotomies, mm-hmm. you know, the cuts that we used yes. to make. And we don't do those anymore either too much. So I did this birth last night. You did? <laughs> and she, she was actually almost two weeks early. Mm-hmm. But she really want. She was very uncomfortable and really wanted to get into labor, and her cervix was really opened up. Uh-huh. Pretty, it was almost three centimeters. Wow! So I was actually anxious that she was going to deliver the next couple of days. You know, one of the ways to get people into labor is to do these kind of strong exams. Yeah, I did that partially with the notion that I didn't want her to deliver tonight because <laughs> I wanted to be able to come and do this with Thank you. Thank you. There's also you to have people, because I remember my second baby, I really wanted to deliver her. And you do a membrane sweep? Yeah, well, that's what we did with this lady. Got you. And so what is that did, for the people did that, that get don't you, know? Did that get you into labor? I did that. I don't know if you actually did a membrane sweep on me, because I know that hurts a lot, doesn't it? Not necessarily. No. I think you did something. Someone has to be, you, you have to be dilated. Yeah. 
And the whole idea, we called a membrane sweep. Mm-hmm. Years ago, we used to call it membrane stripping, which was a really obnoxious term. And what you have to do is you have to put one or two, usually two fingers in, into, the, into the cervix. So the cervix has to be dilated a centimeter or two. And then you separate the membranes off of the cervix. And that releases this hormone prostaglandin, which is one of the natural hormones that induces labor. And it works if the cervix is ready. It worked with this lady yesterday. I think you did it with me. It didn't hurt me. But I remember after that, because I kept having contractions. and I How much longer till you went into labor? I think it was a day. Nothing. Maybe even that evening or the next... I think it was the next day. I was doing walking, uh, clary sage, lots of stimulation as much as possible. I didn't do the castor oil thing. Well, that's the ultimate. Yeah. That does work. What do you think about that? Well, you know that midwives do that a lot mm-hmm. because they're not allowed to deliver people beyond 42 weeks at home. Truthfully, I learned about castor oil years ago from midwives. And so do, do you meant to actually drink it? It gives people a lot of diarrhea. Yeah, that's why I was like, oh, I don't want to go into labor. If you had a choice between membrane sweeps and Mm -hmm. castor oil, I'd go for membrane sweeps. Uh, But you can't do membrane sweeps unless you're dilated. Yeah, I I guess I was thinking about that because people don't tell you that when you're going into labor, other things come up. Uh, other things come out of other places too. Well, that's true. You know that actually getting going back to um, early days. Yeah. Um, we always gave people enemas beforehand. Like how mu- how many days beforehand? No, right right when they're in labor. Oh, really? So we did away with that too. So how yeah. would that go down? Would would it be like they're in labor having contractions? They're on the drug we wouldn't do it if someone was booming along but if someone let's say came into the hospital at three or four centimeters with their first baby we used to do shaves too mm, but now that's right now we don't do that well most people i guess you don't have to anymore but everyone when they came in would get an enema and a shave and was that at the request of the patient or it was just protocol we didn't let patients make any decisions. Wow. I mean, that that really was my memory of pre-natural childbirth obstetrics is that they didn't let people and I and that's one thing I think I was always pretty good at because mm. I always say to people, well, if it doesn't matter medically, you can decide everything. Mm. But you have to then accept that if things there's decisions to be made that you don't have a say mm. that I will just have to make those decisions. Right. But you have to accept that. Otherwise, I'm not going to let you make any of them. Mm. And that includes things like not breaking the water, for instance. That's, yeah. That always put people put that down a lot. Or taking a bath or taking a shower or delivering standing up or doing all sorts of other things like that. And so I think really one of my biggest positives is I give people a lot of choice in that, which people like, and um, and so many other people. I have this guy that's in my office now. He and I were residents together. And he is against letting patients do anything. Oh my gosh! How is he in your office? <laughs> well, he's down the hall, and he 
he doesn't deliver babies anymore. Oh. And he does pay me a little rent. But, uh, and we were residents together. He's a very funny person. Mm -hmm. yeah. Very nice guy and a very good doctor. Right. He just, and and his his personality appeals to some people. So in terms of decision-making, because I, I feel like, yes, you're so ready just to accept whatever, not whatever, but just to accept and listen and really hear your patients. It feels so safe being with you and you'll guide. But if somebody wants something and it's within, you know, your parameters of best practices, then you'll go with it because you've had so much experience. I will tell you this, though, that there are lots of examples where I might be critical of myself, but I, I will... The, in the natural stuff, you have to allow people to be on the fringe of what other people consider reasonable. So I'll give you a good example for that. If you want to have a natural birth and you go more than 42 weeks, we have a little guidebook that has all these things. It says basically that you should induce somebody at 42 weeks. And then there's a little blip that says, but there are exceptions if the cervix isn't favorable, you can let people go a few days. You can go all the way to 43 weeks. Problem is, the incidence of complications during that last week is huge. That's why they don't let midwives deliver at home. So when I let people go more than 42 weeks, so if someone wants to have a natural birth, mm -hmm. they, they hate the notion of saying that we're going to put them on Pitocin. So... I've had people, maybe one or two or three people a year that go beyond 42 weeks. But I see those people every day. I put them on the fetal monitor every day. I check the amniotic fluid with ultrasound every day. But here's the problem. Even if you check them twice a day, there is an incidence of fetal distress in stillborns that happens. About one in 500 that's not very common, but it, it is one in 500. It is, yeah, one in 500. So is that okay to let these people go beyond 42 weeks? Well, it's in the book that they can do it. So I always kind of quote that. They couldn't sue me successfully, but they might actually sue me successfully because it's not based on fact. It's based on emotions when you sue somebody. So every time that happens, I totally freak out in my mind because I allow people, well, it says right in the book yeah, that the people that you would allow to do that would be people that don't want to get induced because they want natural childbirth. But I think you kind of guide people, so you kind of allow them to make their own decision, but you definitely use your intelligence and your wisdom to well i try to give people choices that are reasonable yeah absolutely and like in talking about pictocin and also you can um break the water do you do that often as well breaking the water is probably the most common i think that's thing. what you did to me well it's almost the most common thing that we do <laughs> that goes against what people want to put in their birth plan yeah because what happens is if the water hasn't broken and you get to be five or six centimeters, the the water bag kind of acts as buoyancy so the head doesn't push you into the cervix. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people stop making progress. 
I always tell people that because I like people to make up birth plans. And I sort of joke about this water bag thing. But people take it really seriously cause, because they read all the negatives of what can happen. So you would, to, to induce, you would go first to a membrane sweep, then to break the water if the cervix is... Well, I only break the water if I'm desperate to get the person into labor. I'll tell you, the first time that I ever broke somebody's water in the office was because this lady had to be get delivered. She was about 12 days overdue, and she was okay with being induced, and her cervix was starting to be open. So I called over there, and uh, they said they were too busy to take her out, they, that she should walk around for a few hours. I said, or, or go home. And so I said, well, she can't go home. I, I'm not sure, sure what the situation was exactly, but I just felt, and her cervix was, the membrane were sort of bulging. And I have a fetal monitor at the office. But one of the problems where people read about this, if you break the water, there's a very tiny incidence where when that happens, the cord comes down in front of the head, and that can be a real super emergency. Yeah. So if that happened, let's say in the office, that could be a disaster. So I actually haven't broken anyone's water in the office for a long time, several years for yeah. sure. So I really, I've, I've gotten a little, I've gotten a little more conservative in my old yeah, age. Yeah, I will come to think about it. I think you, my water was, I've never had my water broken like gushing down my legs in all three pregnancies. I don't know when it. Well, sometimes it just becomes a little trickle. Yeah, I think during my labor, like when I was pushing, it still well, happened. Well, yeah, and that can happen. I, why can't I remember this? Is it well, just... Well, because it's not that important. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I'm like, can we go back to my records? But like, really, I don't well, know. Well, I could have dug it out. <laughs> um, I probably could have dug it I out. I love Dr. Crane's office. It's the best. If I... <laughs> I love your office. I got a lot of junk in there. It's just the best. You're the best. Um, so, and Pitocin? Well, Pitocin has a bad reputation, too, because you can overdose people on it, and it gives stronger contractions that can cause babies to go into distress. But we give Pitocin now when we give it really slowly, and we give it through a pump, and we start off with a very tiny amount, and we go up very slowly and become sort of frustrating. And we used to have a different protocol where we'd advance it much quicker, but it used to lead to more babies that would get stressed out. And once in a while that leads to C-sections. But a lot of times when it happens, all you have to do is turn it off and babies do fine. And sometimes in this era where people get epidurals somewhat earlier, because we used to make people, let's say, wait till they were five centimeters. So now, a lot of people, especially second and third babies, they might get an epidural at two or three centimeters. And it has a tendency to kind of knock people out of labor. And then you have to either break the water, or sometimes it becomes you break the water or you put them on Pitocin, or you do nothing. I've had, a, in the last couple of years, mm -hmm. I've had tons of transfers from midwives. From home because, birth? From home births. Yeah. In the pandemic, people were not really committed enough to do it naturally. Mm -hmm. So when all 
of a sudden done, they realize that it's a lot of work and it's very painful. I've had a couple people that have gone into the hospital for epidurals when they were one centimeter, which really pisses me off because that means they were not really trying to yeah. do it naturally. As you know from your first experience, it takes a lot of effort. Oh my gosh, it's the most like painful thing, but also like it's such a hard thing to kind of describe or talk about it because it's so painful, but there is a beginning and an end to it. That's the thing. I always say it's not torture. It's not torture. And you will get through it. And also, if you have that pressure point, if if you have the right support and you had the right kind of like nurturing leading up and you've you've gathered the right knowledge and information, you can really have a beautiful natural experience, you know. I'm still kind of processing my first birth and the things that happened after, which really made it even more traumatizing. But having a baby, having two babies with you in the hospital, me catching the first one, my husband catching the second, and that was such a healing experience for me. And I'm so grateful. I want to have like 10 more babies just to have them with you. I remember Gary's, <laughs> Gary's face when he was helping lift that baby out. You were like, have you got it? Have you got it? He was like, what do I do? It was pretty funny. But um, anyway. He's, he's a gem. Um, I, have a, I have a request. Okay. Is there a birth story that was just amazing in some way to you that you would like to share? Well, I'll tell you what happened about a year ago. I had this couple, actually, this, this son, well, he was a sibling of several people I had delivered. So the mom, his mom was a patient of mine. So it was sort of like that, but I had not delivered him. But they were pregnant. They wanted to have a natural birth. The problem was they lived in far out in Malibu. And so I talked her into doing a natural birth in the hospital. They were cool. They were good with it. And, but so she, she goes into labor. It was on a Sunday morning. And actually, I was, my son was in town from Tennessee. We were out somewhere for breakfast. And it didn't sound like this lady was in labor, very active labor. I said, well, uh, well I guess this was before we went out to breakfast. I said, why don't you do some walking around, give it about an hour or two, and call me back. So, she, so they called me back, and I said, well, it sounds like it was picking up, and they were way out there in Malibu. I said, I think you should come in and we'll either meet in my office or the hospital. Mm -hmm. So they agreed to that. So I was out at this restaurant. I took an Uber to Cedars. So I get to Cedars and I call them and now I could hear that she's really in active labor. And they hadn't even left their house yet. <sighs> so and so I said, well you know, I could kind of tell that she was in pretty active labor. So I had the Uber driver drive me to my house. Mm -hmm. And I live in Westwood. Mm -hmm. And then I called him again. And it just sounded to me, I could tell that. I said, well, drive down PCH. They finally were in the car. Mm -hmm. And go down Sunset. And at Sunset and Bundy, stop. <laughs> and I'll meet you there. So I... I drove, and and I, um, anyway, so they get to Bundy, and this guy's, I said, well, come on, we're going to drive to Cedars. But I 
I examined the lady, and she was, in fact, totally dilated. Mm. Wow. And, and I was starting to see the top of the baby's head. And the guy, so the guy's driving, and he's looking back like this, and he's, and he's going crazy. And um, so finally I said, you know, I just think we should stop the car. So we stopped the car on the corner of Wilshire Boulevard and Veteran, which is right where that the VA cemetery is there. Mm -hmm. And we had the baby on, on that corner. Wow. So that was pretty fun. <laughs> that was pretty fun. And, th and then... How does that go down, though? Like, you have the baby in the car, you've got the placenta. Like you, do you have any medical tools with you? Like, how does that... I had my whole my whole bag of home birthing stuff with me. Yeah. Because I, I jumped into their car with my stuff, which was in my car. Mm-hmm. So she did have a tear. Yeah. So I said, well, okay, well, let, let's go to my office. Mm-hmm. And she hadn't delivered the placenta yet. Oh, Okay. What happened was the placenta came out when we were in that courtyard that yes. I have, and um, and it splattered all over the entire. They they actually charged me nine hundred dollars to clean it up. Uh, but but this was really pretty funny because the um, the couple was there, and we were. Uh, I had to wait. Can, wait. So when you're so she's in the the car she delivers the baby there's a umbilical cord still attached yeah. you didn't cut it no we didn't cut it okay so how is she is she just how does that is she just walking with like the umbilical cord and the baby attached yeah to your office in an elevator well just from the car to the office yeah um, and then the placenta comes out. placenta came out <laughs> at least didn't come out in my office um and then they had um, a they whole bunch of family. Nine hundred dollars. How far did it travel? Oh, they they that was a ripoff. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, it was pretty messy. Yeah. I mean, you people lose a lot of blood when the placenta yeah. comes out. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, they can lose people who are not used to that are pretty taken aback by it. Yeah. But they called all their relatives, so the father and the mother. They had about five or six people that showed up at my office just to hang out with them when you were arriving. Well, no, they they were already there for a little while. Oh, so they, yeah, they saw the placenta come out. No, no, they, no, they were not. It was just the couple and me. Yeah. When the placenta came out. And then, so you were able to take her to the office to repair the tear. And then, then I let them go home. So no hospital. No, I think I. So that that you know what that was sort of their intention in the first place. Mm-hmm. So I got I got, listen I. Was that first baby? First no? baby. Wow. So that was really fast, but... A I'd... boy or a girl, and how much did it weigh? Because that's kind of amazing. Uh, I don't remember <laughs> what it was, but it was pretty average. Yeah. Uh, wow. Listen, in you know, just going back to your own experience, mm -hmm. first births are tough. Second births are easy. You know, did you ever see the business of being born? I did. Yeah, well... You know, I've probably saw that movie ten times. Yeah. But the, it wasn't very fair because she compared her first birth and her second birth. Yes. And um, it's not you just can't compare the two. No. So she gives credit to the fact that she was in the bath, but and there was some truth to that. Mm. So in that respect, I thought it was a really she nice did move movie. the needle in a way. Well, I have one last question. Um. 
what words of wisdom can you share with our families, mothers, fathers, listeners out there, based on all of your years? Well, very simple. This is absolutely positively the best time ever to have babies. Straight from Dr. Crane himself. (laughs) (laughs) It's the best time to have kids. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. I'm so honored. This is good. Thank you so much. I'm really, really happy that we got to talk today. And I'm so happy that... I'm glad I made it. I'm so happy that I had you deliver my babies. Thank you for listening to The Village Podcast, where we share unique stories from all walks of life. Normalizing conversations and experiences in pregnancy, childbirth, postpartum, and motherhood. We are here to serve, and we really want to hear from you. So feel free to share, comment, like, and subscribe to keep this village growing. We are eternally grateful for you being with us and sharing space today.